Hello, hello, and good evening. Welcome tonight. Glad to have everyone here. These front pews are so lonely. They're just, it's, it, they're just teary-eyed on the backs of those front pews. And um, so, you know, when I'm in, when I do Bible class, when it's like this, I just pick up the podium, go to the back of the class, and tell everyone to turn their chairs around. But I can't do that with pews, although some of you would try. But um, we're glad that everyone's here. We have another good crowd tonight. I'll introduce our speaker in just a moment. A couple of prayer updates. Marcus Turner is home, and so we're very glad to report that. Continue to keep uh, all of the Turner family in your prayers. Also, Jimmy Holder, father of Jamie Holder, is in a rehab hospital in College Station. And so we want to uh, remember him as he recovers from a stroke. And there are several others on our updates, on our emails, and on our app uh, that have been on our prayer list for a while, and others uh, that I know you have on your heart as well. Uh, our speaker tonight is Chris White, Chris and Barbara. Barbara is here sitting uh, uh, over there uh, towards the back on my left, and they are, they are a part of the West Irwin family, I mean officially and unofficially, and we love having them as part of our church here, uh, and uh, uh, you're no, they're no strangers to us all here. Uh, Chris has been uh, in Frankston for a long time, and was a, a, a principal, I believe you said, at one of the schools there. And uh, so glad to uh, have that. He's uh, retired now, quote unquote, and is preaching for a church in Palestine and is also preaching here occasionally. As I was interacting with him this week on uh, emails, I told him, yeah, uh, don't get too comfortable because we may be calling you again if Bill can ever schedule a vacation Sunday and, uh, or, a, or a lectureship Sunday, one of those. And Chris has been so wonderful about helping us out here uh, when needed, and he is a great blessing. Our theme this summer, as you know, is looking forward, conquered, or conqueror. And uh, uh, Chris will be sharing tonight uh, from that theme uh, with the subject of Moses. And so that will be a great uh, study tonight. Uh, Before we get started, we're going to have a prayer, and then Rusty will lead us in a couple of songs, and then Chris will share his thoughts tonight. Let's bow. Father, what a blessing in the middle of the week to be able to gather together with our family, to be able to open your word, to be able to speak together to you in prayer, uh, to be able to sing wonderful songs about the great hope that we have in Christ Jesus. Father, we pray for those who we have mentioned tonight, others who are mourning the loss of loved ones, others who are concerned about loved ones or their own health, and we pray that you would bless them. We're especially thankful for your presence uh, with Marcus Turner and all of his family and that he is now home. Uh, We pray for uh, Jamie and Wendy and for his dad and their family as he uh, rehabs and recovers. And Father, for so many others, we just want to thank you and praise you for your wonderful healing and comforting presence uh, with us. Lord, we're grateful for this theme. We're thankful, Father, that we are looking forward. And we're thankful, Father, that we are looking forward knowing that we are more than conquerors through our Savior, Jesus Christ, who loved us and gave himself for us. So bless Chris tonight as he challenges us. What a great story of a man who faced such struggles and yet was your man 
and you worked through him just as you have promised to work through us. So we pray tonight, Father, that you would work through Chris. We pray that you would bless Chris and Barbara in their ministry and their life together and all of the people through the years that they have touched and all of the wonderful blessings that they are to so many even still today. Bless the wonderful church in Palestine where they work and worship and serve. And we ask, Father, that you would use us all uh, in your service for the sake of your gospel and your kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Good evening, everyone. I'm not going to have a podium, but I'm going to get close. <clears throat> sing to me, oh, sing that song. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. That's good singing, is it not? 
You know, from my recollection, there, there were few things that sounded prettier than when this building is filled full of people and we blended our voices. Boy, doesn't that sound pretty? And it sounds pretty good tonight, too. Thank you for that scene. I'm glad to be here. I'm glad to see so many of you, um, familiar faces. It's good to see you. Um, I, I bring you greetings from the, the, we call ourselves the Palestine, the Church of Christ at Palestine for some reason. Uh, I guess we're also the Palestine Church of Christ. I'm not sure. That may be, that may be the group across the highway. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, but we used to be, we were meeting for a long time uh, when they, they hollered at me and asked me to come help them out. We were meeting at the Holiday Inn on 69 and, call, and we called ourselves uh, the Hotel Church of Christ. Uh, but we're the, we're the Church of Christ at Palestine. I, bring, I send you greetings. I bring you greetings from, from them. Uh, I, I don't know if I told you, I probably did, um, but I remember coming here, uh, it, it had to have been in 2012 and placing membership and uh, learn how to place membership because I'd never done that before. Everywhere I'd been, I'd, I'd been hired or not hired, not really. Uh, and so I had to learn how to uh, place membership. And uh, I, I don't know if, if you've ever been in a place where, been in a, a position where everything just seemed... Maybe I wasn't studying like I used to study, or uh, everything, everything just seemed dull and slick, and and like you know, who cares? And then I stumbled upon the West Irwin Church, and I got fed, and I was embraced, and I found people who love the Lord and love the truth, and love His Word, and um, and y'all y'all were a big help to me. And your encouragement and your love and your uh, acceptance has meant a whole lot to me and has been, uh, had helped me turn that corner. I thank you very much. We're going to be in Exodus chapter 32 to start with. And uh, I've got my stick right here. Exodus chapter 32. And I like to take a, um, a little informal survey from time to time uh, asking, what, what's your favorite Bible movie? There's lots to choose from. Uh, I have several that I like. I, I like, uh, do you remember uh, the greatest story ever told? It's the life of Jesus. Uh, we have on our satellite uh, provider, there's this old channel that every once in a while will put old, old movies and there'll be like a, a King David movie or there'll be a, a Solomon or a Victor Mature will be um, a character. And they're just wonderful and fascinating movies. But I think hands down, um, the Ten Commandments, right, has got to be the, the best Bible movie that's ever made. And, and, you, and you have to be, well, let, let, me, let me get this out there. Um, can we also take out of the category, because this usually comes up, that um, the, the movie Noah... I saw it. It's it's. Don't go see that. That's not a that's not a good Bible movie. It's more like uh, Star Wars with Russell Crowe. And also, I've I've sat through Gladiator enough to know that's not a Bible movie. So don't get it confused. Um, but the Ten Commandments with Charlton Heston, you remember? And uh, and I like watching these. I don't I don't do look at them for theology. Uh, I get my theology from Sunday school. Uh, but I like to watch to see you know, what kind of mistakes they make or what kind of omissions or how they portrayed it. And, um, and there are lots of, lots of problems uh, with it. You know, it's Hollywood. They're trying to make movies. 
But the Ten Commandments, when Moses comes down the hill and he's got the, the tablets and he throws, sees the golden calf and he throws it at the golden calf and it explodes and then the earth opens up, uh, you know, great the, theatrics, Cecil B. DeMille. Uh, man, what a, what, a, what a mind he had. Um, but you also have to, you have to be a discerning viewer. If you're watching the Turner Classic movie classic and see Charlton Heston playing Moses, uh, the next movie is going to be Ben-Hur, and you'll find Moses driving a, a chariot in the gladiator race. So be advised. Those are two different, two different ones in a Bible movie, one's not. But Exodus chapter 32 takes us to that place in the Ten Commandments movie where Moses comes down off of the Mount Sinai, and he's got the Ten Commandments in his hands. And he sees uh, that the children of Israel have, have sat down to eat and they've risen up to play. And Joshua thinks it's the sound of, of, of uh, war, but Moses knows it's the sound of rebellion. And he goes down and he sees the children at play and he throws the Ten Commandments down. And Moses turns to Aaron who has built the, the, the golden calf. You remember that story? And he turns to Aaron in Exodus chapter 32 and verse 21. Are we there? Yes. He says, what did this people unto thee that thou hast brought a great sin upon them? And Aaron said, let not the anger of my Lord wax hot. Thou knowest the people that they are set on evil. For they said unto me, make us gods which shall go before us. For as for this Moses, the man that brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we know not what is become of him. And I said unto them, whosoever hath any gold, let him break it off. So they gave it to me and I cast it into the fire. Get this one. Don't miss this. I cast it into the fire, and there came out this calf. Now, at first flush, you're thinking, what? And couldn't Aaron have come up with a better explanation as to how that that calf got there? But his story was, I threw the gold in, and, and the calf came out. Now, If Aaron is telling a lie, where does that place him? Because what what he's been involved in, he's been involved in an uprising. He's been involved in an insurrection. He has been involved in a violation of the covenant just a couple of chapters before where everybody said, we're not going to have any other gods before you. We're not going to worship idols. And now Aaron turns around and he gets them involved in in this calf worship. So if he's lying, he has committed a terrible, a terrible offense. But now here's the next question. Whoops. We could sing again. (laughs) Here's the next thing that happens. If Aaron is lying, why does God turn around and name his family the family through which the high priesthood is going to be named and come? If he's lying, unless he's not lying. And if he's not lying, what in the world is happening here in Exodus chapter 32? So that's what we're going to be wrestling with for a few minutes. Uh, Israel's been in bondage for about 430 years. That's 10 generations. 430 years is longer than the United States of America has been in existence. It's been a situation where if you are in uh, uh, slavery for 10 generations, 
you don't know anything except that culture that's kept you in bondage. They know nothing except Egyptian culture. They don't have any written records yet. They don't have any offices to record things. They are slaves. They don't know anything but slave life at the uh, feet of the Egyptians. The, the Torah, the five books of the first, Old, first five books of the Old Testament, that haven't been written yet. And all they have are oral traditions about Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, and that's what they've got. There have been no miracles. Heaven's not talking to them. And nothing has been going on for the last 400 years except for endless slavery, endless brick making. One day turns into another, one week another, one month another, a year turns into another year, and it's endless slavery, and it continues, and it doesn't seem to have any kind of stopping point. And for those 400 years, what have they seen? What they have seen is Egyptian deities. They've seen Egyptian gods. They've seen Egyptian worship. They've seen Egyptian temples. And we get the idea of just how much of an impact that had upon them from Exodus chapter 32 and verse 4, where they uh, convinced uh, Aaron to build this calf. And then they turn around and said, here's the, the gods that brought you out of Egypt, pointing to that calf. Now, why would they do that? Because that's what surrounds them. They don't have anything else. That's what they know. And they're called uh, to compound things. They're called to worship a God that they can't see, that they can't touch. There are no temples. There is no literature. There are no conferences. There are no synagogues. There's no associations. There's no customs. They've got Egypt all around them, and that's what constantly surrounds them. They know nothing except Egypt and Egypt's deities. Fast forward to Exodus chapter 2. Moses gets run out of, out of Egypt. He had been uh, raised in the, the most powerful man's palace, on the, the most powerful man on the planet, his palace. Uh, Josephus seems to think that, Joseph, that uh, Moses was, was being groomed as the next Pharaoh of Egypt. But something happens in Exodus chapter 2 and verse 15 when he comes across, remember the two, the Hebrew was taking advantage of the Egyptian slave or the Hebrew slave? And Moses looks at that and so he interferes, intervenes, and he kills, ends up killing the Egyptian bully. Stephen is talking about this in Acts chapter 7 verses 22 to 25. And he tells us a little something about what was going on in Moses' mind. Moses was about to stage a deliverance of his Hebrew brethren long before he ever knew anything about the deliverance through the burning bush. He kills the Egyptian. Exodus chapter 2 verse 15 says he looks to the left, looks to the right. He's not about to cross the street. He's looking to see if the coast is clear. Kills the Egyptian, disposes of the body. Comes back the next day. He's got two Hebrew brethren fighting. He tries to intervene. And the Hebrews say, why, are you going to kill us like you killed the Egyptian? And now, he, uh, now Moses knows that the word is out. Now, you could write this off as being, uh, this is Moses' petulance. Yeah, this is Moses with a, a short temper, and he had a short temper. He was the meekest man in the world, but he wasn't always the meekest man in the world. He had a hot temper. But here he is about to try to stage a deliverance of the children of Israel. He's either lost his temper or it's a poorly planned deliverance exit 
strategy. It's an insurrection. It's an uprising. No wonder the Pharaoh ran him out of Egypt. Because he was afraid that Moses was going to get people organized. So he runs Moses out of Egypt. He's 40 years old. And for the next 40 years, Moses does what he had been told he's better than. And that was, he's going to be a shepherd all his life. He's told, you're, you're above that. But now, at 40, he's raising sheep. He goes up on the mountain. He sees the burning bush. 40 years later, he's 80 years old now. We're, we're fast forwarding. And Moses sees the burning bush, and God says to him, I want you to go before Pharaoh and tell him to let my people go. And Moses says, well, what, what shall I, what shall I, how, how will I convince him? What was the first sign that Moses was supposed to perform before the Pharaoh? Do you remember that one? Going the wrong way. Exodus chapter 7. God says to uh, Moses, I want you to take your staff, you throw it down in front of him, and that's going to convince him to let my people go. So Moses and Aaron, Exodus chapter 7, verse 10, they went in unto Pharaoh. They did so as Jehovah had commanded. And Aaron cast down his rod before Pharaoh and before his servants, and it became a serpent. Verse 11, listen to this one. Then Pharaoh also called for the wise men, the sorcerers, and they also, the magicians of Egypt, the magicians of Egypt did in like manner with their enchantments. What? Moses throws his staff down, it turns into a, to a serpent. The wise men, kept, not wise guys, the wise men, the magicians throw their stick down and it too turns into a serpent. Now Moses' stick, uh, you know, it swallows him up. But they performed the very same miracle that Moses performed. Now the next question you have to ask yourself is, who are these guys? They can throw their stick down and it turns into a snake just like Moses did. In Exodus chapter 7 and verse 11, man, I can't remember whether I want to go up or down. I'm going to stay right there for right now. In Exodus chapter 7 verse 11, they're called wise men. They're called sorcerers. They're called magicians. They practice enchantments, secret arts. Here is a, a commentary from a rabbinical commentary about these guys. And here's this, this rabbi says this, these men were men who were wise in adjuring and gathering demons. These were the leaders and elders in Egypt. The wise men were experts in the art of demons. The sorcerers were masters of magic. The experts were held in high esteem in Egypt and referred to as wise men. Now, first of all, notice that the rabbi connects demonology with the practice of these magical arts. They're called sorcerers. A sorcerer is one who engages in the practice of witchcraft. The Pharaoh of Egypt has these guys. Okay, time out for a second. This is part of the Pharaoh's cabinet. He's got these guys on retainer. You thought our president had a cabinet full of clowns? The Pharaoh of Egypt, look what he's got. 
He's got enchanters. He's got magicians. He's got wise men. And he's keeping them as his advisors, as his entourage. Now, what's also significant to mention is in the law, those guys were completely outlawed in Israel. Here's Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 10. Let no one be found among you who sacrifices their son or daughter in the fire, who practices divination or sorcery, interprets omens, engages in witchcraft, or casts spells, or who is a medium or spiritist, or who consults the dead. Anyone who does these things is detestable to the Lord. And because of these same detestable practices, the Lord your God will drive out these nations before you. You must be blameless before the Lord your God. The nations you will dispossess, listen to those who practice sorcery or divination. But as for you, the Lord your God has not permitted you to do so. Did you notice in Deuteronomy chapter 18 that he links together human sacrifice and the practice of divination and witchcraft? That's Deuteronomy 18, verse 10. What was the penalty if you practice this in Israel? It's like culture. The penalty was death. Why? A house divided against itself cannot stand. And if you turn to that, you're gonna, if you turn away from God, you may turn to that. But they're also called magicians. Magicians are those who employ secret arts. The secret arts were diviners, astrologists, engravers, one possessed of occult knowledge. Today we might say that these were people who practiced in the black magic. They were associated with supernatural knowledge. But don't miss this, this statement. In Exodus chapter 7, it says that they in like manner duplicated the miracle of Moses' staff turning into... They didn't say, they didn't say they faked it. It says they duplicated it. Now what does that suggest? It suggests that in some manner there was a religious power that those guys were accessing and bringing before the Pharaoh and bringing before Moses and Aaron. You say, well, Aaron's snake swallowed up their snake, their stick. Yeah, he did that. But that doesn't dismiss the fact that their stick turned into a snake too. There's some kind of a religious power operating here. What was the next miracle? Uh, the next plague that Moses brought down. The next plague was blood. Here's Exodus chapter 7, verse 20. Moses and Aaron did so as Jehovah commanded, and he lifted up the rod and smote the waters that were in the river in the sight of Pharaoh, in the sight of the servants, and all the waters that were in the river were turned to blood. And the fish that were in the river died, the river became foul, and the Egyptians could not drink water from the river, and the blood was throughout all the land of Egypt. Verse 22, don't miss this. And the magicians of Egypt did in like manner with their enchantments. They duplicated the miracle. What was the next miracle, uh, plague? Frogs. Exodus chapter 8. This is what the great Lord says. Let my people go so they may worship me. If you refuse to let them go, I will plague your whole country with frogs. The Nile will teem with frogs. They will come up into your palace and your bedroom, onto your bed, into the house of your officials, and on your, on your people, into your ovens and kneading troughs. Can you imagine that? Everywhere you turn, you, you, you pull back your sheets at night and there's frogs. You, you go to cook breakfast and the frogs will go up on you and your people and all your officials. But verse 7 says this. And the magicians did in like manner with their enchantments and brought up frogs upon the land. 
Now, what's interesting, if you keep reading in Exodus chapter 8, Moses is going uh, going to break the will temporarily of the Pharaoh. He's going to call on Moses, and he's going to say, take the frogs away. And Moses is going to say, when do you want me to call them off? And and the Pharaoh is going to say, tomorrow. And the old preachers jump on that, and they get their sermons about, you've heard these sermons, Bill? One more night with the frogs. Nobody wants to spend another night with frogs, but the Pharaoh said, call them off tomorrow. That was his mindset. But the magicians of Egypt did exactly the same thing. They duplicate the first three miracles until you get to the gnats and the flies and the lice. Here's Exodus chapter 8 and verse, uh, verse 17. Uh, when Aaron stretched out his hand with a rod and struck the dust of the ground, lice came upon men and animals. All the dust throughout the land of Egypt became lice. And the magicians did so with their enchantments to bring forth lice. Don't miss this. Look at it. But they could not. And there were lice upon man and upon beast. Then the magician said unto Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. Finally, it gets through that they are standing in the presence of a power that's greater than anything they've been dabbling with. And this is the finger of God. In your margin, jot down Luke chapter 11 and verse 20. In Luke chapter 11, Jesus is here. He's performing miracles. Guess what he's doing? He's casting out demons. And he's being accused of casting out demons by the power of of Belial the God of the flies, the Lord of filth. And Jesus says in Luke chapter 11 and verse 20, using the very same phraseology that the magicians used. He says, if I by the finger of God cast out demons, then is the kingdom of God come upon you. He uses the very same figure of speech that the magicians used to acknowledge that they were standing in the presence of a higher power that they could not exceed the finger of God. Now, interestingly enough, this power can be traced through ancient periods, through Egypt, Greek, Persian, the Hebrews as well. Magic was the uh, highly esteemed in these ancient cultures. Uh, The word demon is the word uh, in the Old Testament, uh, according to those who are supposed to know, uh, is the word sedum. It's the word that appears in Genesis chapter 14 and verse 13. Do you remember when uh, Lot got captured in the battle of the four kings against five, and the kings of uh, Sodom and Gomorrah? Uh, that was in the valley of Siddim. And that word Siddim is the word uh, demon. Now, does that give you an idea of what that culture valued and where that culture was at by naming their valley the valley of demons? Now, in Genesis chapter 19, these cities are going to be consumed with Sodom and Gomorrah, but the word Siddim, from those who are supposed to know again, say that that word, the the root word is the word shed. And an ancient culture believed that Siddim was the word that described the spirits that protected their cities. Can you imagine a city or a culture so descending that it believed that their protecting spirit was a demon? Now, we've got our motto, in God we trust. But they had as their motto, 
in the demons we trust. Now, what does that mean? You remember Genesis chapter 6 when God destroyed uh, the world? Every thought that entered the heart of man was evil continually. When you get to Genesis chapter 14, it's Genesis 6 all over. That culture was so steeped in the occult and wickedness and the dark side, the entire society was based on that. Here's a, a, a book that's entitled An Encyclopedia of Occultism. You can find anything on the internet nowadays. And they define black magic in this way. Black magic, the use of supernatural knowledge for the purpose of evil with the implication of diabolical infernal powers, today has become a slave to the powers of emissaries or agents of man's will. Now, I know that's not scripture, and I know you, you probably, it's hard to follow it without being able to see it, but according to that definition, these spirits, these demons, become slaves of man's will. Man determines what happens to them. Man opens the door. Man can also shut the door. And it's just like heaven. If you want God to, if you want to draw near to God, guess what you do? You draw near to him. If you don't want him to draw near to you, you could shut the door. He won't. He, he, he respects our free moral agency in the same way for the other side. If you want Satan to be part of your life and abide with you, hey, the door is open. All you got to do is open it. Let him come in, and he will, and he'll make his mess. Here are some New Testament verses. The word demon was used 60 times in the New Testament. Was it a prevalent problem in the New Testament times? Apparently it was. But what happened to all those demons? Look at Mark chapter 3. Mark chapter 3, verse 27, Jesus said, No one can enter the house of the strong man and spoil his goods except he first bind the strong man. Who was the strong man? Satan. Who entered his house and bound him? Jesus did, spoiled his goods. Here's Colossians 2 and verse 15. He's despoiled the principalities and powers. He made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. Here's Revelation chapter 20 and verse 1. I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the keys of the abyss and a great chain in his hand, and he laid hold on the dragon, the old serpent, which is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He limited him. He did not eliminate him. You put your dog on a chain, right? And that dog is limited to the radius of the chain. And as long as you stay out of the circumference of that dog chain, he's not going to bother you. But once you step inside of that, that length, you're now under his influence. The devil has been bound. He's not been eliminated, but he's been curtailed. That's why James chapter 4 and verse 7 says, you resist the devil and he'll flee from you. When you come to the New Testament, it appears that people were simply subject to whatever the demon world wanted to, to operate. And they had no control until Jesus arrived and he ran them out. And now man has that control. Here's a curious statement in Zechariah chapter 13 and verse 1. In that day there shall be a fountain open to the house of David to the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin, for uncleanness. And it shall come to pass in that day, 
saith Jehovah of hosts, that I will cut off the names of the idols out of the land, and they shall no more be remembered. Listen to this. And I will cause the prophets and the unclean spirits to pass out of the land. When did that happen? As soon as Jesus showed up and started cleaning house. He bound the strong man. Here's Ephesians chapter 6. Our wrestling is not against flesh and blood, but against the principalities, against the powers, against the world rulers of this darkness, against the spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. What's Ephesians chapter 6 all about? It's about a, a, a battle that's going on that's spiritual in nature. And if you're not equipped, you're going to be in trouble. Question, do you see people in our culture whose lives are in trouble because they don't have spiritual armor? Where does bad theology come from? Where do cults come from? Here's 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1. The Spirit saith expressly that in latter times some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits. And this phrase has been in that Bible forever. Giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of demons. Why is it that people can have eyes to, to see and not see and ears to hear and not hear? Has that been a problem in the Bible? Yeah. Do you know people who just can't see the truth or won't see the truth? Yeah. Why? If you don't turn to the good Lord, many times people will end up accepting things that are far more difficult to accept than the truth ever was. Okay. What does all that have to do with Aaron? When you start looking at Mount Sinai uh, and the giving of the, of the Ten Commandments, you've got a lot of different moving parts here. And, and it's almost like reading, you remember reading um, the household of Cornelius in Acts 10, but you've got to read chapter 11 in order to get the whole picture once they go back to Jerusalem. When you start looking at the Ten Commandments, you, you've got like Acts, uh, Acts, Exodus chapter 19, and you've got Exodus chapter 20, then you've got Exodus chapter 24, and then you've got Exodus chapter 32. Here's the chronology of this. They come to Exodus chapter 19. They've been in the wilderness wandering for three months. God descends upon the mountain. Moses goes up. Moses goes up and down Mount Sinai about seven or eight times here. God says to Moses, I want the people to be my people. I brought them out of Egypt on eagle's wings. I want them to be my people. Moses goes down, tells the people about God's proposal. They like it. He goes back up to God, tells Moses, uh, tells God, they want to uh, be your people. God says, all right, here's what I'm going to do. Three days, I'm going to descend upon the mountain. I want you to go back. I want you to sanctify the people, get them ready, set boundaries around the mountain. Don't come on the other side of the boundary. And if it's an animal, if it's a man, if it's a woman or a child, they're going to be shot. And then also, the next time you come, I want you to bring Aaron with me, with you. Moses goes back down the mountain. Three days later, God descends. There is smoke, there's trumpets, there's lightning, there's all kinds of noise. The people are scared to death. And God makes his announcements. He says, bring Aaron next time you come. You come over to Exodus chapter 20. Chapter 20 has the listing of the Ten Commandments. 
But the people come to Moses and they say, we don't want, you to, we don't want him to talk to us. He's, we're scared of him. And Moses says, don't be afraid. He's, tempted. He's, he's trying you. But they, they, they don't believe him. They're still scared of him. And so they follow Moses afar off and stand off on the mountain. You come over to Exodus chapter 24 and you have another set of directions. Now Moses and Aaron go up the mountain, but you have another set of people with Moses and Aaron. That is the 70 elders and two guys by the name of Nadab and Abihu. Do you remember those guys from Leviticus chapter 10? They stand afar off. They don't want to get too close. Moses goes up the mountain a little bit higher, speaks with God, comes back and tells the the elders and, and Nadab and Abihu, and they say, whatever he tells us to do, we're going to do. They go back to the people. Moses builds 12 uh, pillars. He tells these young men to build 12 uh, altars. They sacrifice and they take the, the blood of the sacrifice, they sprinkle it upon the people, they sprinkle it upon the altars. And then in Exodus chapter 24, verse 7, Moses pulls out what is called the book of the covenant. The book of the covenant. And I read that and I thought, well, that's the Ten Commandments. Until I read down to about verse 12, and the Ten Commandments hasn't been given until verse 12. And I'm like, then what is this book of the covenants? And the commentaries seem to suggest that it is a cataloging of all the rituals and all the procedures that go along with the sacrifices and the law. All that before the Ten Commandments are ever given. You're still in Exodus chapter 24. God says to Moses, send Aaron and her back to the people. Let them be in charge. If there's any problems, let them handle it. I'm go, Moses is summoned up to the mountain to get the Ten Commandments on the ten, uh, the ten Commandments. And then that takes us to Exodus chapter 32. We're at the end of the 40 days. Moses is about to come down the mountain. As he's coming down, Joshua says, hey, I hear the sound of war going on. Moses says, no, that's not the sound of war. That's the sound of, of, of rebellion. And the people of the children of Israel sat down to eat and they've risen up to play. And Moses comes down and he sees Aaron with that golden calf and he turns to Aaron and says, what in the world have the people done to you that you did this thing? Now the question that we have to ask here before we close is this, how do you throw gold into a fire and a golden calf come out? Either Aaron is lying or he's telling the truth. And if he's lying, he is committing a, a, a dastardly sin. But if he's lying, why would God make his family the, the, the family of the high priest? Unless he's not lying and he's telling exactly what did happen. Now, we've already talked about the influences of magic and enchantments that the, the magicians and the wise men in Egypt had. The first three miracles were duplicated by those guys. Moses demonstrates that he's got a power that exceeds the, the power of the magicians. But here's part of the answer. 
if you turn to evil as your source of power, be careful. You may get what you ask for because you're not turning to, to, to God, you're turning to evil. John chapter 8 and verse 44 says, The devil is a liar and a murderer from the beginning. Evil has nothing that's true unless we give it power to be true. That golden calf didn't have any power until they assigned it that. All the, evil, all the power that evil has is what we allow it to have. Ladies and gentlemen, what Exodus 32 is about, it's about a spiritual warfare. It's about Moses having to conquer and Moses having to comfort. A warfare that is so real that in the Bible, evil does exactly what they asked for and Aaron explained exactly what happened. So what did Moses do? Moses took that golden calf. He ground it up scattered in the waters, made the children of Israel drink. Now, why'd he do that? Punish them? Sure. Extra dose of indigestion? Maybe. Have you ever heard of colloidal gold? What I understand is that you could take gold, and if you grind it up finely enough, if you mix it in water or in glass, it will take on a red hue. And maybe in that ancient world where these people had done something that was so egregious that God in his grace was symbolically pointing to them and saying that which was the point of your own destruction has now become the means of your own salvation. Does that ever happen in the New Testament? The rock that people stumble over was also the chief cornerstone. What should Aaron have done? Should he call upon God? Sure. Would, that, would God have answered it? Probably. But he didn't. He resorted to his own devices. But he didn't worship the idol either. He delayed, but he didn't worship. But as Christians, here's maybe what we can take away from this for this evening. As Christians, let's arm ourselves with the word of God. Let's wield it properly and it will slice and dice every evil that we encounter every single time. And let's occupy ourselves with his word and the Lord will surely fight for us. Let's make sure that we are, are students careful students and that we use his word to face every temptation and every evil that we encounter shall we pray our holy father in heaven thank you for this day and for the many blessings we thank you heavenly father for your word for its depth for its challenge thank you heavenly father for its simplicity thank you heavenly father that we have these stories to remind us of of your power and the temptations and the evil that surrounds us. Bless us, Heavenly Father, for having gathered. Thank you for those who are, are here. Forgive us of our many sins. We ask that you'd be with those who are sick and not feeling well. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.